Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes, thank you for listening. Many are the uses of creative expression. An impassioned art teacher and the artist known as Tiny Doors ATL together devised a lesson plan to engage kids of all ages in creating outdoor art with one inexpensive material, chalk. We'll hear about this inclusive and accessible art project from Tiny Doors later in the hour. Art meets moral philosophy in an innovative way at Emory University. Two professors from Emory's Center for Ethics will tell us about the role of art in elevating moral discourse through the Center's Ethics and the Arts program. First, the art of comedy. You could say that Neil Brennan is a comedian's comedian. Some have even referred to him as the comic whisperer. Brennan was the co-writer of Chappelle's show, which ended in 2006. Since then, he's been tapped to write for the likes of Chris Rock, John Mulaney, Aziz Ansari, Seth Meyers, Michael Chi, Hassan Minaj, Amy Schumer, and Michelle Wolf. For the past few years, Neil Brennan has been in the spotlight himself. His special Three Mics was released on Netflix in 2017. The show was surprisingly raw and revealing. I spoke with Neil Brennan in 2018 before he performed at Variety Playhouse in Atlanta. Here, he talks about the unusual format of his three-mic stand-up show. The premise was I had three microphones on stage, uh, one for stand-up, one for kind of one-liners, and one for uh, what could only be described as emotional stuff. Yeah, very. And uh, I think it was a, a mix. So I would alternate. I would do 10 minutes of stand-up, to 8 minutes of emotional stuff, 
a minute of one-liners and like just repeat that i repeat that three times and um and uh it was uh it was a nice i think it was an effective um sort of format like uh people really liked it and and every day i get cuz i talked about clinical depression i talked about uh uh to you know unsatisfying parental uh relationships and every day i get some kind of message from somebody on on online saying how much it it meant to them or how much it helped them or whatever so that's been very gratifying and also people people think it's funny too all of the above you've said indeed that three mics was the most successful thing you've done on your own what do you think accounts for how well it connected with the audience how well you, you know, connected the there's an old saying or phrase uh that i that i used to bring up fairly often when i was doing Chappelle show with dave which is the depth from which something emanates in you is the depth to which it travels in the audience and i would say that it emanated from me on a pretty deep level yeah. if i can be so uh, pretentious and uh and it's so it, that's where it got you know it emanated from me in in uh subterranean level four and it <laughs> got to the, the audience's subterranean level four as well no, I don't think it's pretentious at all. There were times when I found myself feeling anxious and and getting worked up hearing your description of depression. Yeah, you know, that's funny. Uh, yeah, you know, I don't have anxiety for the most part. I, I Depression, I absolutely have. It's just kind of a low-grade chronic depression. Anxiety, I've had uh, right around the time I did, I shot three mics, I started having panic attacks, and it was awful. And that's a thing that I have way more sympathy for now. Um, panic or anxiety disorders are, are I, I, they were foreign to me, so I, I, uh, they probably felt worse. But man, did that feel? Because that's like I was immobilized. Well, and they also exist on a continuum. And the, the description of your depression, Neil, was stunning. Um, hearing you, you speak, absolutely stunning, and hearing you speak in such vivid detail is so powerful for those listening. I wondered what the impact was for you to be delivering it. Um, it I guess it felt, uh, it was clarifying, you know, meaning like it was, there was no, um, it was just like, hey, it was almost like a in a courtroom where it's like the, before they sentence, there's like the sentencing statement from the from the uh, from the uh, defendant where he'll go like, look, your honor, da da da, and then he'll just that's kind of how it felt. It kind of felt like, okay, let me just explain what how I experienced depression. This isn't everyone's experience, but this is my experience, and uh, and hopefully it's it's. Uh, clear some things up and that's a not, that's a thing that people have also said it's it made them feel less alone but also made their husband or their girlfriend or their wife or their friends uh understand them better and hmm. that's great like that's really great that that someone go oh okay now i get what you're saying hmm. well when you said 
that's why you're grateful for jokes. Grateful mm -hmm. for jokes. That just spoke volumes about why your talent has been such a lifeboat. You know. Yeah. Where and everybody, you know, in my case, it's jokes in in in, you know, in a. Uh, you know, for instance, hip hop artists, it's it's rhymes or it's beats or or uh, or uh, if it's a painter, it's it's ideas for you know concepts for for paintings or whatever. So everybody's got their own uh, sort of oxygen source. <laughs> well, on on a lighter note, because there's a whole lot that's just rip roaring hilarious. <laughs> um, I loved your take on Lance Armstrong. Yes. That he is, uh, he he did he ultimately he raised some he raised a hundred million dollars for cancer, so he basically did drugs for charity. <laughs> um, in essence, which you know happens fairly often. Yeah, but then bringing in Michael Jordan, that was priceless. Yeah, what did I say about Michael? I'm sorry to be like, what if, was that? It? If what he were, if he were, you know, if he were to shoot. If he were to machine gun down, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yes, he could. Michael Jordan could murder. Uh, he could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue, as it were. And you talk about his outside shot. Yes, exactly. One of my favorite lines was what you said about tanning salons. Ah, uh, yes. If I were black, I would stand in front of tanning salons all day and laugh at white people. <laughs> um, why yes. does the, why are tanning salons legal? Why are they legal? Why uh, why shouldn't they be? Because of because they're carcinogen. Yeah. Uh well that then that, that's going to be a long line. You're going to have to get bacon in that line. Bacon's a carcinogen. Oh no. Um. What else? Uh. Like a lot of drink sodas. Uh. Um, cigarettes, of course. No. Okay. Okay. But, you know what I mean? Yeah. I just I don't get tannic slumped. Do you really think Pope Francis is hardly even Catholic? Uh, well, now that I've seen how he handled the uh, the the abuse scandals, it turns out he's quite Catholic. <laughs> you can say <laughs> this because you were born. Yeah. Well, Catholic. I was raised Catholic. Yes. Yeah. And um, um, very intriguing. Your your idea of ending racism by ending race. Yes, the we're never going to end racism. It's pretty basic tribalism, meaning just it's we're America's like the kind of the first integrated country for the most part. I mean, like not uh, I'm I'm kind of overstating it, but but where it is truly like a melting pot where it's just all kinds of people. Uh, whereas if you watch the Olympics, it's like if you watch the you know people in the the athletes from China are pretty much all Chinese. And and we could go down the line. The it, the part of the three mics where um, I saw your acting prowess uh, uh -oh. was this very clever personification of testosterone. Yes, uh, I think that that has been uh, uh, in the past year pretty clearly illustrated by some of my comedy brethren. Uh, what the kinds of things testosterone will make us do. Um, I think it's, testosterone is just a bad, it's most of, as I said in the special, most of what it wants is uh, illegal. It's against the law. So, But it's also like a galvanizer in that it's probably the same thing that took us to the moon. 
I mean, you know what I mean? Like it's like it it it's it's in small doses great, but in large doses uh highly toxic. Well, I think as a male, it was very generous of you to own up to that. Oh, you're uh, that's is that how low female standards have gotten? <laughs> <laughs> that you're just happy that I admitted it. No. That I'm sorry. And, I'm sorry. I thought we were making progress, and, and then I doing, guess Kavanaugh showed us that we're not doing those. I mean, one arm push-ups too. Yeah, huh? How did, about it? Did you have to rehearse for a long time? I didn't. I actually wish that they could have been more convincing because it was sort of like that when you do a show. You don't know how stable the uh, the the stool is, so it's kind of hard to know. So that was a new stool, oh. and uh, and so I didn't really know how stable it would be. Otherwise, I would have liked to have put more pressure on it. Something especially hilarious in Three Mics also was your remark about the female build, that if you told an architect how to build a woman, they'd say it's not yeah. safe. Yeah, it's not. It's a bad design. Well, you I, can. I mean, like, if you look at the the that joke came to. I mean, it's a great design. Hey, ladies, don't get me wrong. It's a great design, but in terms of like, even if you look at like uh, track and field, right? Yeah. You look at male bodies. It's a pretty straight line, um, and the female body is like it's curved, and your thighs are rubbing. It's just not aerodynamic. It's good for. Uh, you know, child for for birthing a child, but but in terms of like getting away, or uh, or just running, or I mean, it's again, it's like big in the middle, and then like you have small feet, so it's like, well, that's not very helpful. Okay, that point in three mics just made me open my eyes wide and say to myself. What is his creative process? Neil, that was I was watching track and field and I thought (laughs) I thought these women don't have a chance. (laughs) That's the only joke Michelle Wolf has ever said she's jealous of me for. Michelle is like, I wish I she's like, I think about that joke every there's certain jokes that when you write jokes, you'll come to somebody else's joke every time. Um, like like in when you're writing comedy you just like Michael Che always says like when he writes sketches for Second Live he, every he'll just come upon a sketch that me and Dave did on Chappelle show <laughs> like like you just go like ah and then I'll, ah they did it like you just you you think you've got a new formula and then like ah they already beat me to it but when do such ideas come to you i mean other than okay you were watching a track meet so is this just Random? Is this how you go through your waking hours? Do you carry around a little notebook? I I have a I have a thing I've just used Evernote on my phone, ah. and uh, it's an app that I do not. I'm yes, not we are twenty first century. Yeah. Yes, um, and that I was watching track and field, had the thought, and then I kind of thought like it's a crazy design. It's like the women's bodies are like the. Uh, like that that art museum in Bilbao, Spain, like <laughs> where it's just like, a, what do you what? Like this is not. It's great. It's again, huge fan, ladies. But in terms of like, you know, yeah, you know the things you want. Um, it's a uh, it's a little unwieldy. You got to wear strap. You got to strap yourself in every day, like you're like your evil Knievel, um, with the bras and the. Sp- I mean, it's just wild. What a mind. What a mind, huh? 
comedian Neil Brennan before his Atlanta appearance in 2018. Three Mics is still streaming on Netflix, and you can watch Neil Brennan's special Comedians of the World episode on Netflix now as well. We'll be back in just a moment to hear about an innovative approach to the arts through philosophy at Emory University. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Ethics is a system of moral principles that affects how people make decisions and lead their lives. The study of ethics is concerned with what is good for individuals and society. Dr. Paul Root-Wolpe is the director of Emory University's Center for Ethics. He joins us now with Carlton Mackey the director of the Center's Ethics and the Arts Program. Welcome to City Lights. It's a great pleasure to be here. You both co-founded the Ethics and Arts Program at Emory. Paul, you've described the program as the only of its kind in the country. What made you decide to create this program together? Well, I've always thought that using the arts as a way to discuss social and ethical issues gives us an insight and an emotional context for that conversation that no other vehicle can. I've seen it over and over again, especially in the theater, which is the area I love is live theater. But in movies also, and in visual arts, people talk about the things they see and they talk about them in new ways because the purpose of art is to try to disrupt our normal ways of thinking, to question the values that we take for granted. So art has a powerful role to play in ethical conversation. Hmm. Carlton? I am an artist and it was my desire to connect the work that I do as an artist and the unique ways that artists poise to create nuance to um, challenge ideas, as Paul said, to disrupt assumptions. In my ongoing work at the center and in my role as the direct associate director of the Ethics and Servant Leadership Program, to be honest, um, the Ethics and the Arts Program emerged out of my desire to connect my work as an artist more explicitly and directly to my work as a burgeoning ethicist. And I was very fortunate to be connected to a director of a center who got it, who got that desire, and to whom it did not sound outlandish to begin to explore 
the possibility of leveraging the power of art to address pressing social issues, as well as to create a very different and I think more engaging conversation um, for lay people and scholars alike uh, using the power of art to do so. And as an artist, you are primarily visual film, correct? That is correct, film and photography. So what does your class encompass? I have been quite fortunate to, to propose a series of courses at the university. Um, the one that has gotten the most attention is a course that I created called Film, Media, and the Art of Social Change. And it encompasses a deep dive and an exploration of the history and the role that artists have historically played in addressing issues of reflecting their time and affecting change as well as awareness around those issues. So the, the core of the course, we have historically paired four to five artists with four to five nonprofits in the city, all that address issues that are important and address pressing social issues from incarceration to food scarcity to sex trafficking. So we partner the students and the artists with those nonprofits and together they create projects as a part of the course that um, raises awareness around the issue that the nonprofit um, is committed to serving um, the city around. So how does the art that your students study influence ethical discourse and debate? The first level um, is that it provides the students with an opportunity to learn about the issues that they otherwise may not have had intimate knowledge around or um, a direct connection point to. So that's on the first level. It, it allows them a level of access to just learn about some of the, in a non-stereotypical way, the, the real issues that people are, are facing who are experiencing oppression in, in multiple ways. Two, through the creation of the art, it allows them not only an intimate connection, but a nuanced way, a more complex way of both understanding those issues, but it provides them a, a vehicle for communicating those nuances. I think, you know, as I said in the beginning, art is uniquely poised to do so in its way of dealing with complexity and, its, and, and in its ability to translate both feeling, emotion, and to present multiple ideas at once um, in a nonlinear way. So are the students themselves making films in these classes and creating artwork related to the issues you discuss? Absolutely. They are paired, and if I wasn't clear about this, they are paired with a professional artist in the city. And that artist functions as chief facilitator or mediator between the nonprofit and the educational experience of the students that they gain by actually creating the work. So the artists are, they lead the projects, but it is their task in working with us as the professors to absolutely ensure that the students are able to have meaningful engagement, to help conceptualize the pieces, to help implement and install the murals or the film, or to, to go on set and to do a photo series or a photo documentary. It, it's the artist that functions as a liaison between the two. 
and invites the students into the process of building this critical work that we're discussing. I read that this year you are offering six different fellowships to artists. And Paul, I know you were very excited about the robust response you got to this. Can you tell us now who those artists are and why they were chosen? I'm going to let Carlton do that, but I do want to say what was so exciting about this was that the, the course that Carlton just described is a high-touch course. The students really work hands-on with the artists, and in a time of COVID, that wasn't possible. So how do you keep the same spirit of learning without the students and the artists able to get together physically and create art? And Carlton came up with a brilliant idea that he sold to our vice provost of the for the arts, Kevin Carnes, to get six of the best artists in the Atlanta region and pair them with faculty for whatever course that faculty can convince us an artist could enhance and then have them work together to incorporate that artistic element into the course in, in a creative way. And as you said, the, the uh, response was overwhelming. Over 40 courses and over 70 artists from our region applied to be part of this for the six courses in six places. So it was extraordinarily um, popular and uh, it is a model, I think, moving into the future. So I'll let Carlton tell you a little bit about who ended up being our choices. Um, I, I'd like to say one thing be be before I do, and that is that this fellowship is, is new, as you said, um, Lois, you were talking about creating this fellowship. And it, it's important to 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 identify the the name of the fellowship as much as the artist because it's very telling to what motivated it. This fellowship, it's it is the inaugural arts and social justice fellows program that is what was created. And the reason I wanted to say that explicitly is because the artists that I'm about to mention and the courses that were proposed, they came out of our desire to create an opportunity to have meaningful action around toward justice. Mm -hmm. And um, it is the concept behind this fellowship is rooted squarely on utilizing this moment and these critical national and international conversations around race and justice to give Emory University and students and this city an opportunity to to have those conversations maybe in a way that they haven't had before and these artists every one of them in their own right uh, have communicated their their commitment to addressing these issues particularly around race particularly around around the justice issues that they're committed to they have shown their commitment to doing that and their excellence in engaging audiences around these issues and um we're really proud to welcome, I think this is an artist who you know or know, know of uh, his work, Lois, cellist, um, Okori Johnson. Okay, cello, a friend, okay, of, cello. A friend of the show. We Absolutely. go way back. <laughs> I, I, I mentioned him first because I knew that uh, I would, I, or at least I hope it would elicit that response. So, <laughs> we adore him. We are really excited. We have Dr. Fahamu Paku. Also a friend of the show. Also and a friend of the show. I know it's an artist of whom Emery can be very proud. Very, very proud. Um, and actress and producer Olivia Dawson. This next 
artist, if you will. Um, we're really proud to have her um, because she is the only individual in this inaugural cohort, as we are calling these fellows, who doesn't identify necessarily as an artist per se, but is critical. And I think it makes a powerful statement that we are welcoming a, um, an arts advocate and arts administrator, a very powerful black woman um, who created Powerhouse Creative. Um, we are welcoming Ash Nash into this in inaugural cohort. And again, she's the creator and CEO of Powerhouse Creative. We are welcoming and are proud to welcome Shaniqua Gay and uh, another actor and Emory alum, uh, Mr. Garrett Turner. All of these artists um, are Black artists and identify as such. Um, it wasn't a prerequisite, it wasn't a requirement, um, but we certainly um, are proud to center the Black voice in this moment and to give these Black talented artists with critical voices uh, an opportunity to have their voices amplified, but also to invite us into what is an opportunity for transformation, discovery, and hopefully uh, we really want to affect change in, in, in this city and to contribute to the change that is ongoing across the world right now. Do you know yet which courses they will teach? So the courses, what's so wonderful about it was we didn't limit it. I mean, you could be teaching differential calculus and apply for one of these artists if you could make some case for how they could enhance um, your learning. So the kinds of courses that we ended up funding was a course on epigenetics, a course on um, civil rights cold cases. Some of you may know Hank Klibanoff, who's... Uh, uh, podcasts and things have been award-winning around those issues. Yes, we take great pride in that yeah. too. <laughs> yeah, you got it. Um, yeah. Uh, so we there was a one course on feminist art and activism, a uh, course on uh, in the nursing school, uh, I mean in the School of Public Health actually on prevention of mental and behavioral disorders, um, and one in the business school, looking at a lot of issues around race and social justice as well. So the courses were really across the board, not just um, in in the college, which seemed would seem to be the place that you would think this would go, but it also included the School of Public Health and the business school and um, uh, the Oxford campus. Uh, so it was really well distributed around the university and and. This is the inaugural class, and our hope is that the incredible response to this will indicate, I think, how, how successful this is going to be. And perhaps next year we can expand this and bring more artists into more classes for contact with more students and, and make this really a signature program for Emory and the Center for Ethics. It sounds very exciting. The Center for Ethics also runs an art gallery that hosts different exhibition. The last show had a very disturbing title, Bullets and Nooses. Would you tell us a bit about the exhibition and describe some of the works that were on view? I'd, I'd love to. Um, we were honored to have um, Derek Phillips Sr., um, a local artist from East Point, and his work it played on and resembled in many ways Byzantine iconography of, of saints and many of, of, 
figures of, of Christ and in place of those um, olive skinned um, to, to be generous in place of those. <laughs> I was going to say, not the lily white, blue eyed saints. Yeah, I, I, uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm not referencing those on purpose. Uh, <laughs> um, but, but in place of those, Derek um, replaced those figures with black human beings and showed them and their dignity. Many whose names we know and who have been identified and have been whose names we've uplifted from Trayvon Martin to Emmett Till, but many unidentified figures, black men and women, and in the place of their halos and, and the, the ways that they illuminate in traditional iconography, they glistened with the shine of bullets. Um, and around each of the necks, they were, were, were nooses. And his, his challenge to us, his invitation to us was to reimagine um, these fallen individuals as worthy of sainthood, of worthy of being uplifted in a way other than simply the last thing to be said about them or is the statistic of their murder and their death. He invited us to see and to rethink the weapons of their demise. Um, he, he talked about the cross being glorified because it is the vehicle for the execution of the first century figure that many people call the Christ. He invites us to reimagine the noose in the way that we see the cross and to see it as, as certainly a symbol of death, but to think about it as the modality and as the vehicle that, that allows us to now be invited to to a different time, type of redemption through these people and through the blood that they have shed. The images are absolutely stunning, shocking, and yet something about viewing them reminded me a bit of listening to Billie Holiday sing mm. Strange Fruit, that you're almost swept up in the beauty of her voice and the melody until you regain the realization that she is singing about lynchings. And similarly, these images in Bullets and Nooses are quite beautiful to look at. Is that the essence of the way in which you think art can make an impact on our own ethical thinking? I think it is. Um, it's Paul who has helped me understand how to define ethics differently than I may have, uh, even upon starting to work at the center. And, it, and it's often these competing goods. Um, it's these competing ideas, let's just say, that, that where true ethics takes place. And it is that very point. It is that those very intersecting points that you described, the, the beauty and the horror that I think art is positioned to help us explore and invite us to not walk away with simply reduced, simple answers to, to these issues. And, and I think that in, in politics now and in discussions, and we are, we're so fragmented in part because we are not having critical conversations about things. We are taking them um, 
as one side or the other, as A or B. And we're not really invited in a lot of ways. We're not invited via many vehicles to explore the depths and have critical, engaging, rich, robust, um, strange fruit-like, as hard as they may be, but strange fruit-like dialogues about issues. Have you had any response from students who have taken courses, left the program, anything you've heard, this is for both of you, that just does your heart good and makes you all the more grateful you've created this program? It's, it's remarkable, the um, emails that we get. Um, we pass them around the center. You know, it isn't that often in higher education that you can really allow people to experience not only the intellectual, but the powerfully emotional side of what they're studying. Higher education has not been good at combining those two and, and creating a space for our emotional reactions. And what's so powerful about not just the ethics and the arts program, though that's the exemplar of it, but what we try to do at the center is to say you can't remove the emotional context of ethical conversation because it is about our values and how we express our values in the world. And we express our values through our pain and suffering, through our experiences with others, as, as much as we do through some rational calculus of how we want to live. And until you find a deep and robust way to put all of that together, you don't have the depth of conversation that you should around what ethics really means. And I think that's the great accomplishment of the ethics and the arts program and something that we try to uh, emulate throughout what the center does. And the students respond to that very powerfully. Dr. Paul Root Wolpe, director of Emory University Center for Ethics and Professor Carlton Mackey, director of the Center's Ethics and the Arts Program. For more information about the Center's fellowship program and gallery, check out our website later at wabe.org slash citylights. The education of children has been very challenging since the outbreak of COVID-19. Teachers struggle with the limitations of virtual classrooms, and parents face unexpected demands on their time from all directions. With these concerns in mind, a popular Atlanta artist and an imaginative art teacher devised a plan to help. Joining us now via Zoom, are Karen Anderson Singer, the artist known as Tiny Doors ATL, and art teacher Kira Sampson. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Thank you. Before we discuss your community-focused remote learning lesson plan, Karen, would you give us some background on your art? Tiny Doors ATL and how it began. So I graduated from art school in 2013 and that's when I moved to Atlanta. And I was really impressed 
by, of course, Atlanta's amazing art scene and the big, beautiful murals. And I've always been into public art and interested in miniatures and decided to combine my love of those things, but bring in that new element. So I've heard of fairy doors before, of course, but wanted to bring in this element of reflecting the environment around it. So when I make a door, the first one was at the Krog Street Tunnel. I made it to look and feel like the Krog Street Tunnel. It was six years ago and it had tiny graffiti on it. And that door is still there. And just like the Krog Street Tunnel, it changes. So I try to keep them alive and I do constant maintenance. And one of the things that's always been important to me is accessibility. And that's what public art is about. So, you know, when we talk about it, I, it is important to me that we create accessible art for all. And Karen, for those who may not be familiar, what are fairy doors? So fairy doors are small doors that have been around for hundreds of years. Um, they started sort of in the woods in Europe. And then where I'm from in Ann Arbor, Michigan, there are some fairy doors. And when I spoke to the creator of the fairy doors there, I asked what their mission was. And he said it was to create kind of a culture about fairies um, and for ways for people to interact with fairies. And in Atlanta, it's more about people and community. Um, I, don't, <laughs> I don't really use the word fairy typically. I try to keep it focused on what's in front of the door and who you meet there. Ah, okay. Kira, please tell us about your background as an artist and art teacher. Absolutely. I grew up in a family of artists. Everybody has their own little thing. And it wasn't until I was in college that I had my public speaking professor assign a project to us to find something we're passionate about. And I began doing research. And at the time, I was going to school to become an elementary educator. But I came across, um, this was back in the early 2000s, that the arts were being pulled out of the school system because of funding and the recession. And it just really rocked me because I realized theater and painting is what got me going to school every single day. Um, so in that moment, I chose to jump into a career that was obviously being defunded um, with the passion to make sure that the art was happening in the schools. Since that journey began, I have been able to teach in Brooklyn, New York, in Los Angeles, and now here in Atlanta and teaching art and um, I love being able to bring it into the school system every single day, and I'm glad it still exists. Well, hats off to you for that. How did you meet Karen? So Karen and I originally met through a mutual friend that I had went to college with who Karen had met here in Atlanta. And I had just moved here to Atlanta and was just told our mutual friend, please, like any artists you know that I can bring into the classroom, anything that comes up, reach out to me. And then Karen at the time was wanting to put in a door um, in near one of the schools that I work at. And so she linked us up. And from there, she was able to come to our school, interview our kids, do some artwork with them. And it inspired um, that door. What led you both to create this lesson plan? So I had been thinking about creating something that was still engaging. A big part of Tiny Doors ATL that's been enjoyable for me and what kind of fuels my fire is watching people enjoy and watching people use their imagination. 
and sitting in the studio by myself, that's been missing. And I thought about how I could still interact with kids and see them use their imagination. Even if I'm not there to see it, it's, it's just, it gives me inspiration to see them create. And so I thought about a way that I could create something that kids could take and run with. And Kira and I are both on the Artist Advisory Council for uh, the Atlanta Beltline. And so I had heard her talk about, you know, looking for ways to still engage with children. And it was the perfect marriage. What exactly goes into the lesson plan? So I can take this. Um, With the lesson plan, as we were talking about it, I really wanted to get into the mind of Karen of how this would look in people's homes and in their communities. So as we were talking and she's coming from the artist perspective, I'm trying to line it up into the actual plan that will be delivered. And really it came down to is allowing these children and these families to enhance and show off their own neighborhood, their own door, their own community. Because right now, that's where we all are. We are all at home. We're all in our community. So taking Karen's beautiful way of doing that in neighborhoods with the tiny doors and bringing that into everybody's home. So that's really how we kind of looked at this from a big scope. And then we zeroed in on just the different tools that they could use to create this image. What I really liked about Kira's perspective on this is that I wanted to know what materials we could use. You know, I'm here in a full studio, but I was saying to Kira, what do students have at home? What can we do that makes this accessible to the most students, that makes this something that any teacher and any parent and any student feels like they can pick up and work with? And what Kira said to me was that chalk and a sidewalk can get you really far if you can put in your imagination. Hmm. So tell us about the art project the lesson plan asks students to create. So what we wanted to do, it starts off with a video that I made. I am the artist in residence for Atlantic Station. So I used my neighborhood, which is Atlantic Station, and just took chalk and sat outside, and what the lesson focuses on is observing. So I'm looking around, I'm just seeing the shape of the particular streetlights in my neighborhood. I'm seeing shopping bags from people walking around. I'm seeing, you know, the brickwork that's around me. Really, they can feel like minute details, but they add up to the architecture of your neighborhood. And that creates a feeling when people walk by, they're seeing something familiar. It can feel like their own door, even if it isn't exactly theirs. So we focus on that. We really start with observing and then using chalk to create. So with that being said, there is a platform that I use in my own art room. Um, Many classes growing up were all about technique. But what I have recognized through my experience is that really with children, you're not going to teach them to grow up and become an artist. While you would love for that to happen with everybody you recognize, art is just beneficial in expression and all of those other things. So using this um, model called the Studio Habits of Mind, it's teaching children to think like an artist. 
And so with that comes the idea of observation. Um, that is thinking like the artist. What do you see? What are you seeing? Um, and taking that in and then putting it out there. So we'd be surprised about how much children actually these days are so distracted by so much. So getting them to sit still and observe and then reflect on it and then actually drawing it. So when they are looking at what they're going to put by their door, they're looking at the shapes, they're looking at the colors. And the idea is to have them put all of that just using chalk on their sidewalk. And then all of a sudden they step back and they see this creation. So the lesson plan, you know, starts with Karen doing her own door. But the teacher's job of doing this lesson plan with their children is to use these ideas of studio habits of mind to teach them to think like an artist. So you are asking kids to create the door with chalk outdoors. Yes. Yes. That's what we're doing. And I, what I really enjoy about that is you know, Kira has experience in lots of different types of districts, and we wanted to do something that a child who's living in an apartment can do and a child who's living, you know, in a five-bedroom home. We wanted it to be someone that was accessible to students with different materials and in different neighborhoods, and chalk and sidewalk was a really easy common denominator. We also created, and um, we're using the hashtag TinyDoorsATL, and asking students, teachers, parents, anyone who wants to share their tiny door creation there. And it's a way that I can see it and like it and participate in it with the students. Are the lessons geared toward one age group? We started out creating it using my own experience of working with elementary students. However, we did add a page on there for extension to um, for older children, like different chalk techniques that they can use, um, different questions they can ask themselves of what they include with the door. So it does extend all grades. And are you making this lesson plan available for free? Yes, the lesson plan is free and available to everyone. It's hosted on the Tiny Doors ATL website, and it's something that we would love to see go to anyone who could use a lesson plan right now. Did you get a grant to do this? We did not. We did this because we love it and we enjoy it. Karen, you've talked about how important it is for students to view the arts as a viable employment option. And Kira, you just said how you decided to go into a career that was being defunded, and that's what inspired you. How does this lesson plan accomplish what you both are so passionate about? I want to say one thing about that, which is when I, you know, Kira and I went through, we worked on the plan together, and the last thing I did was sit down and make the video. And when I put the camera up and I looked at myself, I made the video by myself in the studio. And when I saw myself in the studio and I thought about the kids that I was talking to, and I thought about the fact that in my whole life growing up, I never studied a living artist that felt accessible, let alone a woman. But I just, you know, anyone that I studied was long dead and it felt like a long dead career. And the, the act of, you know, being a living artist that's accessible to students, to me, felt really like I was doing 
the right thing. Like all the things that I could be spending my time on that felt like the most important. I agree. I think there's something very powerful about teaching my students artists who are alive today and who are continuing to do art. And I also just feel like being able to present this to them and be like, this artist is still around today. She's still making doors. But not only that, your question about how me going into like a defunded career, I believe that this is such a great time in our country and our world where we get to place something in the hands of families and say, hey, do this with your children or allow them to do this. Or this can be taught at home as well. Because I think that putting it in their hands allows them to see how important the expression of art is. Because when they're getting it in school, that's one thing. And I know I send my kids home with tons of artwork all the time. And I imagine the parents were like, I don't know what to do with all of this. But I think that them being able to see the expression of children doing it themselves is really a powerful tool to show how important it is in our education system. What a wonderful outlook. Karen Anderson, singer Kira Sampson, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having us. Atlanta art educator Kira Sampson and Karen Singer the principal artist and director, better known as Tiny Doors ATL. For more information on how to access their free arts lesson plan, check out our website later at wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of Atlanta arts and culture. Tomorrow morning at 11, author, producer, and composer Tina Clark will tell us about her protest songs and writing music for social justice throughout the years. Our producers are Summer Evans and Ryan McFadden. Kevin Rinker is our engineer. And I'm Lois Reitzes. I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to 90.1 W-A-B-E. Atlanta's choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Have you donated to WABE yet? I know you've heard us talking about why it's important, but it doesn't have to be this big decision. You can give at whatever amount fits your budget. It can be a spur-of-the-moment thing. You already get so much out of public radio, so just go for it. Visit wabe.org donate and become a member right now. And thank you.